Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Values drive everything. And whether they're spoken values or they're values that we simply have intrinsically that we don't really talk about or we don't even or maybe haven't even identified, whether you know this or not, the way that you make decisions, the things that you do, the the family dynamic that you have, the way that you spend your time, talent, and treasure is an indication of the values that you hold to be in the highest priority. When I was in in high school, I played soccer, and and I enjoyed playing soccer. Um, It was a a sport where I could participate as part of a team, and I could enjoy some time um, with some of my friends that also played, and it was something that I could get outside, and I liked to to work out, even though I don't know I'm working out, which soccer is a sport where you run the whole time, and you almost don't know you're running. And and I remember specifically in ninth grade, we we got to uh, our first practice, and it was uh, early in the summer, or midway through the summer, I should say, and uh, the team gets together, and we got all of our uh, stuff together that that the coach actually handed out the the uniforms, the practice uniforms, and the bags, and all those things, and we got suited up, and we were ready, and we go out to the field, and before we begin practice, our coach calls us all to the side and says, I want you to sit over here on these bleachers. And we all got together on the bleachers next to the field. And he gave us all pieces of paper and he had us write down what our expectations and desires were for the season. So this didn't get hugely philosophical real quick. A bunch of high school, or for me, a ninth grader even, um, we didn't write down that we wanted to learn the secrets of life or we wanted to, to be able to play like Pele. No, what we wrote down were some interesting things. Wanted to make friends, wanted to, to do a little bit better. We wanted to, to win our conference, some of those types of things. And after we put those items together and gave them uh, and kind of shared them together and gave them to the coach, the coach came back reflecting what his desire was for the team and then also what our expectations were. He put together what our desires were in the form of here are our values now. And then also as we move forward, here are our values, our desired values for our team as we grow together. And it was interesting to note that as the team went on and as we continued to have these values before us, that as we would practice, as we would play games, as we would travel, as we would see each other in the classroom, because those values went beyond just what happened on the field, every area of life and in our specific lives, as we would walk through the school year and walk through beyond the the season, even walk through the season, when we would talk, we would bring up, hey, that's not one of our values, What you're doing doesn't really reflect what we decided as a team was one of the values that we were going to hold to. In your family, you probably have family values, and sometimes, possibly more from the the parent to the child, sometimes someone falls out of line with one of the established values, and there has to be some kind of response to the fact that someone is not adhering to an established value. And sometimes that response can be someone gets grounded, right? That's not one of our values, son, daughter. This is what you have to do. In the family of God, there are specific Values And certainly our value book comes from uh, what we know as the Holy Scriptures, the word that was written by human beings but was, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And without this specific book, we would somewhat be lost on instruction and understanding of what values God has called us to live by. And thankfully, fortunately, because of the the obedience specifically today as we read, but also far beyond that, uh, the obedience of one man named Paul, we have some very specific instructions on what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and what it means to engage in relationship together. Today we're going to talk about this thing called fellowship. And fellowship is forged through the establishment and facilitation of shared values. Shared values that we find within the context of Scripture. The basics of fellowship can be found specifically a couple different places in Scripture, but the one that I'm going to read is our core passage today is in Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2 is an interesting chapter as it kind of, it's, here's the, here's the, the response to what happens after Jesus leaves. So whether you, you, you've read scripture or not, let me just kind of give you a, a, a quick, uh, uh, a quick, simple uh, explanation. So, so God created the world and humanity included. Humanity sinned and, and created a severing, a, a chasm between the creation and the creator. And then eventually, after uh, many, many years of, of attempting to try to find this way where, where humans could, could be righteous and try to find their way to, to, uh, to honor God, at one point, uh, God finally sent his son Jesus. And obviously, I'm leaving out a lot of things here, but he sent his son Jesus. Jesus, a, a perfect perfect person with, with, uh, with, a, with a human nature and a, and a God nature. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. And after his sacrifice uh, for us, he rose from the dead. And eventually, after revealing himself to many witnesses, he ascended into heaven. So what that means to you and I is that Jesus is not walking among us. He's not going to come in uh, to the service today and say hello in physical form. But shortly after Jesus left and rose into heaven, the Holy Spirit came. God the Father sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit still presides with us. And the Holy Spirit, uh, in this moment of Pentecost, comes upon the believers, the people that were followers of the way. And here we see the response to that after the Holy Spirit has come and has engaged with those who are following Jesus. And in chapter 2, starting in verse 42, and it reads like this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So as we look at this specific passage, obviously we look at the, the cultural and the, uh, understanding of where they're at and the, and the place into which they live. They lived in close proximity. They were in this full understanding. There wasn't this, this huge persecution yet, and so they were able to live together and, and be in this place together. Contextually, this worked for them because there weren't buildings uh, that, were, that were erected uh, for, for worship. There wasn't these, these other specific places where they could go, and so they met together in this specific place because of the fact that 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 was what they had at the time, and so they were using the resources they had to gather and to get together. Also, their faith went beyond just Sunday morning, because it says that they were meeting together uh, continually in homes where they would eat together, and they, they, with glad hearts, they would give together. They would praise God beyond just Sunday morning. They would praise God in their everyday lives with one another. This passage may look uh, a little different uh, methodically as we would look at it, but there are universal principles that we can pull out to recognize and understand what it means to have interpersonal fellowship with other believers, with, with, with this lateral relationships that God has called us to live in. What they didn't, uh, what they might not look like, what we might do might not look exactly like what they did. There are some things, some actions that we should certainly learn and an act in our own lives. Have you ever felt like um, things could seem insurmountable when it comes to fellowship? What I mean by that is we look at this passage, you might read about it, you're like, wow, I don't know if I could give and, and sing and pray and do all these things all the time. Maybe um, you've been at a place where you think, man, there's, there's people that maybe even are, are believers and, and, and we look at them, and, and, and not in a judgmental way, you say, man, I don't know if I, could, if I could get along with this person. It's okay to admit that. We don't always have to get along with every single person. In fact, you know, while it says that they, were, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, uh, it doesn't necessarily say that they all agreed politically about everything. It doesn't say that they all agreed about every single, uh, you know, what, 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 uh, what decorations were, were used or, or what decisions were to be made on how to spend funds. No, instead it says that they came together and they believed in the same apostles' teaching and they fellowshiped. Out of all the spiritual disciplines that we will explore in this series, this one I would, I would contest is probably the most difficult for many people, for the majority of people. Because it can be difficult to live in unity and fellowship with people that we don't always get along with. 
people who rub us the wrong way. Sometimes even in church, people can be difficult. And if you disagree with that, we just say right now, if you disagree that there are people in church that are difficult, just think about this for a moment, you might be the difficult one. <laughs> right, the church is made up of people. Just as we sang about it and we heard that last song specifically about brothers and sisters, the church is people. It, it, it's, it's not just a place we go, while that was metaphorical the way that we sang that. It's not just a place that we go, it's this, it's this communion that we have with other believers. It's this engagement that we have with, with others who, who adhere to and believe the same things that we believe, who have received the Spirit in the same way that we have. Specifically looking at this, it, 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 we're going we're gonna to jump into, especially for those of you who may have a, dif- have a difficult time looking at this because of, of other people, so to speak, we're going to look at an extreme case. You might think it's difficult to, to engage with others in your life that you uh, want to have or, or desire to have interpersonal fellowship with, but today we're going to look specifically at a guy whose job, whose entire purpose was killing Christians. We're going to look at somebody who, as they engaged in life, they recognized or or believed that their purpose was to eliminate and stomp out any who belonged to what they knew at the time as the way. I don't know, perhaps uh, some of you, this is your past. I don't know of anyone that, I don't know anyone personally that their role, that their job, that what they did previously was to, to try to kill Christians. But what I will say is, if I did know that person, it would make it fairly difficult for me to want to engage in interpersonal fellowship with them, especially if they said, oh, I've changed from that, and now I'm doing the opposite. I want to further this plan. Today, we understand the practice of interpersonal fellowship, and we explore the conversion of a man named Paul. Saul's conversion, or Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, details a a very clear picture of of some very important messages or very important universal principles that we found in Acts chapter 2. And so what we're going to do is is use this as a bit of a case study. And for for those of you who are out there say, I don't know, there's a difficult person in my life. I don't know if I can fully trust that this person has changed. I don't know if I fully get this whole thing or if I can fully jump in with, with both feet. Let me just walk through this. And as we listen to the passage, as we listen to the the words that were written here by Luke as he's penned these for us today, let us recognize the fact that there are difficult people. There have been difficult people throughout history. And it's not through the action of individuals, but it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that fellowship is possible. So as we walk through this, I'm going to pause as we go, and we'll spend time reflecting upon the pieces of chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, it says, meanwhile, and this is coming in response to many of the individuals who are starting to experience persecution. They're being scattered. Many of them are being killed. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, so get this, Paul, Saul is on his way. He's got letters in hand ready to, to grab up anybody, you and I, that he sees and to take them as prisoners so they can be tried and then executed for their faith. And here he is going down the road. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And get this, the response in verse 5, who are you, Lord? Almost as if Saul answers the question in the sentence, in the, in the question himself, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replies. We're going to pause there for a second. So Saul has this agenda. He's, he's marching forward with his, his own righteous, in his mind, marching orders to eliminate those that he believes to be heretical, who are going against the teaching, uh, who, are, who are against the, the, the things that he has before him. And the recognition here as he gets to this certain point is this transformation moment. 
Perhaps you can recall or remember your transformation moment where God finally got a hold of you. Maybe it happened at a young age where it wasn't a finally. It was something that you just knew. Like it was something that you, you grew up in a, in a home or an environment where, where God taught you and revealed to you the truth from the beginning. Perhaps you walked through difficult times in life and struggled and looked at other avenues and other attempts to try to find God. And then finally God, he, he was able to get through in some way. And, and as he continued to knock, you opened the door. Maybe something in between. I, I don't know what your story is, but hopefully you can remember that birth moment, that moment where you went from death to life spiritually. You know, you think about the, the different things in life that we do, there's typically a starting point, a first day on the job, a, 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 a first day, that, that wedding when you, or that marriage when you, when you start that together. There's, there's all these different types of firsts. You know, I think about a race, you start the race. Say you're running in a race today. And I know some of you might be more difficult to picture running in a race right now. But say this afternoon you're running in a race. One o'clock, you've got a race. You start the race, or the, you get to the race, you've got all of your stuff ready, you've got your, your uh, what do you use at a race? I don't have any idea. So you get to the race and you're, you're there, you got your shoes on, right? And, and you start to, to get ready, you get up to the line and, and they, they start the race and you begin to run. And as soon as the, you cross that starting line, there is a differing expectation for you. Right? There's differing values for you as soon as you begin the race. Some of us, our value is just don't die, right? Just try to get to the end of the race. Some, some values might be to win, but all of us have the same specific expectations when we're in that race. We're running this race together. There's expectations that we stay within the lines of what are provided for us. There's expectations that we continue to move forward. There's expectations for some that you continue to nourish yourself with water or, or some kind of a power gel or drink, whatever it might be, depending upon the length of the race. There's, there's, there's expectations that we rely upon, hopefully, some of the training or some of the, the things, that, the endurance training that we've done prior to. Scripture also talks about a specific race spiritually, and the fact that you and I, as we step over that starting line of conversion, that moment of transformation where God changes us, He transforms us from the inside out, we begin a race. And with that race, there are also expectations. Let me tell you, the universal law of God is over all things. But certainly you and I have probably had discussions with people who don't follow Jesus about things within the context of Scripture, and it's hard to be able to engage with them in a very deep way because they don't subscribe to the same thing, although the laws of God are still present and still dominant in authority in their life. While we run this race uh, uh, spiritually with God, the recognition first and foremost of this idea of Saul's conversion, this idea of, of, of uh, a fellowship together is this. Conversion comes first. It's difficult to fellowship with somebody within the context of a race, of this race together, if they're not running it too. And the first point is this. Biblical fellowship requires common ground and beliefs. And salvation is the prerequisite for that. Salvation is the moment, that conversion moment together. Biblical fellowship requires common ground and beliefs. And the question you might have is, well, what are those? What are the common ground? What is the common ground? Because, there, you know, we, we look at different denominations. We look at all these different things, and there's, there's places where people don't match up. There's places where churches don't match up. What are the common ground? What, what, you know, who should, I, who should I fellowship with and who shouldn't I? Well, they say they're a Christian, but they don't believe this or they don't believe that. Let's just talk for just a moment. Let's pause for a moment about, and, and talk about biblical fellowship. Fellowship is a, is a biblical word, so to speak, a forgotten word that many now are like, oh, that's an old word. Let me just say, it's a powerful word. The word fellowship is derived from the Greek koinonia, and, and this word koinonia can be defined as holding something in common. And certainly you and I have fellowship with God because we have this thing in common, this, this close relationship. But there's also a desire that God has for us to have lateral relationships with other people where we fellowship together, where we have something in common. And I would venture to say that if you and I were to sit down or you were to sit down with your neighbor or anybody else in the room, you could probably find a thousand things that you don't have in common. And so when we look at this concept of fellowship or this, fellow, this concept of holding things in common, this koinonia, it's not about all the things we don't have in common, but it's about the, about the things that are most important, the things that are fundamental. 
There is fellowship with the Creator. There is fellowship, this interpersonal fellowship with other people. And there's some essential things, some orthodox beliefs that we, you and I, have to have in common should we engage in real and lasting fellowship. To share a few, the divine inspiration of Scripture. The divine inspiration of Scripture. Should we have things in common, things we hold in common, we must believe as followers of Jesus, that Scripture is divinely inspired, that this was given to us by our God, the one who loves us, the one who created us. Another orthodox belief is the, is the Holy Trinity, that we believe that we worship God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit, who dwells among us today. There must be a recognition of this, of this belief in, in that of those who we fellowship with, that we all study, that we all, that we all uh, pray to, that we all engage with the Holy Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We must believe in the deity of Christ, that Jesus wasn't just a good man. In fact, if Jesus was just a good man that walked around and taught good things, we shouldn't worship him, number one. And two, we shouldn't believe him. Because the things he taught would have been heretical. For him to say that he was God, that he could forgive sins, those would have been heretical. He's not a good teacher if he's not God. Another orthodox belief is the virgin conception of Jesus. Because without the virgin conception of Jesus, he's not God. Instead, he just has a human nature, just like you and I. And therefore, he's not godly. And therefore, his sacrifice for us is not enough. It's temporal. It's not eternal. Another one is the literal and physical resurrection of Christ. If you and I found the bones of Jesus today, they were able to somehow through DNA and carbon dating, they were able to figure out, okay, these bones right here were the bones of Jesus. That should shake our faith. Because that means that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Or that means that he didn't ascend into heaven. And so therefore, his, his bones, his physical presence here on earth should shatter uh, our understanding. We should believe that. We do believe that. Maybe one more, and this one is, is crucial, something I was talking about earlier, this conversion moment altogether in orthodoxy belief is that salvation by grace through faith alone is necessary. It's not Jesus plus. I, I, I kind of, this, this is one of my most frustrating things to talk about. It's not Jesus plus. It's not, God, I love you and I want to follow you, but I also need this other thing over here. I also need, it has to be set up this perfect way. It's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus only. And it's by grace, his grace that he has granted us and our faith in response that we can experience salvation. And yes, that sounds simple, but it's not easy. There are essential, unifying, orthodox beliefs that we must all engage in. And those specifically are, are, are the common ground. There's non-essential unity too. There's things that, that, that are, there's matters of conviction. You know, some of us, we look at scripture and we might read it and we say, okay, well, it says right there that we shouldn't fall in any temptation. We shouldn't cause our brothers to stumble. So I'm never going to drink a drop of alcohol my entire life. And then there's people on the other side that say, well, you know what? I, I can drink it because Jesus drank wine and there's, there's, there's reason to believe there's medicinal purposes there. And as long as I don't get drunk, I'm okay. And there's these two different sides and there's some that have a conviction to say, no, I won't, I won't have any. There's some on the other side that say, I can do a little bit. And, and within the context of that, that's not a reason to sever any kind of fellowship. That's a conviction. Additionally, there's, there's matters of conscience, Right? There's matters of conscience where we look at life and we recognize the fact that sometimes things don't always go specifically the way that we might anticipate or that we want. And then there's matters of choice. I can't tell you how many times I, I engage with people, especially during a political election, and they talk about these different things to make decisions about, these different things. And I can't believe that people on the other side, the people that disagree with me, could be Christians. Biblical fellowship requires common ground of beliefs within the context of orthodox beliefs. What we believe about Scripture, what we believe about God, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about Jesus. Can I just say this? Can I just attest to this? Saul, at this point, is beginning to step forward when he saw the light. And that light brings forth this prerequisite, this understanding of salvation, but at the same time, it brings forth this recognition of common beliefs, common ground 
with other believers. You know, I know that because the passage as it continues begins to attest to that. In verse 6 it says, now get up and go into the city. Jesus is instructing Saul after he has revealed himself. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I want to pause there for a minute. Anybody ever gotten an urge from God or a command from God or been voluntold by God to step forward and do something and hasn't given you the whole story? Like here, I, I want you to go talk to this person. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. J- just go, I'll give you the words. Or I want you to step out in faith and I want you to take this new job or I want you to move to this place or I want you to enroll in classes or whatever it might be. Anybody ever been there before and you don't know exactly why or what the next step is, but God calls you to it. And when he does, he'll see you through it. Continuing in verse 7, it says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could, not, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Can I just say, this is a perfect uh, uh, metaphor a perfect picture, a perfect illustration of what it means to lean on others. Because ultimately, individually, we can only go so far. God created us to live in unity, to engage in unity. And the second point is this. Christianity is a collective journey. Christianity, this Christian walk, is not something where God said, okay, I'm just going to create you, good luck, do it on your own. But he created us to walk in it together. Christianity is a collective journey. You don't need to make, you know, personal, you do need to, excuse me, you do need to make personal decision yourself to follow Jesus. But as far as your process together, personal accountability, this journey was intended to, ha- to be had with others. I'm going to let you in on a secret if you can keep it. Can everybody keep a secret? All right. We're kind of exploring about, uh, with this new concept uh, starting in September. We're going to kick off this fall of, of engaging in another type of groups. Now, we have some groups that meet now that are classes. We have some that meet within the context of homes. And, and what we're attempting to try to do is create another, uh, another avenue for connection, for growth. And we recognize certainly the culture that we live in. You guys have plenty of time, right? Everybody in here, you've got nothing going on for the rest of the week, right? So, yeah, uh, we recognize the fact that, that sometimes it can be difficult to be able to even engage in uh, interpersonal fellowship with others on a weekly basis beyond the Sunday morning experience. And so what we're attempting to try to do is we have rows, right? You're sitting in rows now, and and we have opportunities for service. But the third component, this round, this group, this circle facing in is one that has been lacking. And so what we're attempting to try to do is create another avenue. Um, We're we're, we're fishing the idea or using the idea of a community collective together where we gather together around tables, specifically within the context of the church, And we have specific things that we walk through, and each table will have an opportunity with a table host to be able to walk through the content with questions, whatever it might be. In essence, what it is, is a a bunch of small groups, so to speak, that will meet together, that will gather together. We'll have an opportunity for uh, someone to share, or maybe a video for the week, or a testimony. And then from that instruction, we'll have opportunity for growth, for discussion. And we're hoping that from that, relationships are forged, and are strengthened, and are built, because we recognize, uh, and this is a, a term I use often, strategic organic, which basically means we strategically put together an opportunity for organic growth. And what our desire would be or is for this specific initiative that we're still trying to work out and flesh out all the details is that we as a church would go beyond just a Sunday morning experience where we come here and while we do worship together, we come to this place and we're somewhat unattached. And for those of you specifically who are wanting to take that next step, this is an opportunity for you to come and to meet new people or to grow in relationship with people you already know and to learn more about Jesus. And so as we engage in this, this round or this group mentality, this group opportunity together, we recognize the fact that we don't do it alone. That you and I can point out moments in our life where God moved or changed or transformed us or brought forth a new day. And in many cases, somebody else was involved. Somebody else prayed with you. Somebody else prayed for you. Somebody else wrapped their arms around you. Somebody was there in that moment. Somebody helped you to understand a Bible passage or, or to help you to, to walk through some thoughts or something that you were dealing with. Someone else. God used someone else. Just here, he used other people who weren't even at the time believers to help Saul in this journey of following what God had called him to do, regardless of whether he knew what the next step was going to be. 
I love a good story, and I hope you do too. This is, uh, this is kind of the, the ultimate for the good story. It's when the, the, the author is setting up another environment, right? They set up this other side. So right now we've been focusing specifically on Saul and his interaction, and now the author, Luke, is switching to another environment, another scene, so to speak. And as he switches scenes, he goes to another storyline, and we begin to hear about this other guy that God is preparing. And I love this too because I recognize, and probably you recognize, it, that God works these things out, and in his timing, he brings them together. It's kind of this, meanwhile, back in, in Damascus, Ananias was basically starting to engage in this call that he saw as impossible. And in verse 10, it reads like this, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul, for he is praying. And we can read that. You and I can read that right now. And as we read it, we think, okay, well, yeah, he's just going to go and he's going to talk to this guy. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And so the, the, the words have been spelled out. The Lord has spoken through this vision to Ananias. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what I would like you to do. But Ananias has a little bit of information, right? Paul from Tarshish has a, a reputation, or Saul from Tarshish has a reputation. And verse 13 says, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to you, to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And so right here, Ananias has kind of given God like this, okay, here's all the reasons why I think that you need to reconsider this call that you've put on my life. Right? Remember Saul? He was the one who was, was literally killing Christians. He's the one that, that's been trying to take you out, God, to try to remove your name from everyone's mouth and everyone's heart. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. With an exclamation point. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God said, Ananias, here is what I have for you. Step forward and fellowship with this new believer. The third point is this, often fellowship is messy. Some of you are laughing because you know that's true. Often fellowship is messy. You and I know that life doesn't always fit neatly into a wrapped package where it's perfectly in our timing, where it's scheduled and where it's planned. No, oftentimes it's unplanned. It's destructive. Sometimes it, 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 it takes away from us and, and it can and cause us to, um, to, 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 to shatter our, our regularly scheduled programs, so to speak. Now, those are all good things because the response, in, in essence, in a lot of ways is God will fill us and he'll, and he'll redeem uh, those, those perceived losses. You know, cars are notorious for, for basically not working when you need them, right? Maybe you've experienced this before, just not recently, or excuse me, recently I was getting in the car and I was going to uh, run and do a couple of errands real quick. I just had a little bit of time and I get in the car and I turn it on and it's fine and I begin to, it, it, uh, I put it in park and I begin to drive, or excuse me, put it in park. There's my issue. I found out what's wrong. I put it in drive, I think, I hope. That's what happened. I put it in drive. If my mechanic is watching, I apologize. No, I put it in, in drive, and I begin to drive, and I hear this squeaking sound, right? Anybody, the squeak? Only the squeak that you hear, because when you take it to the mechanic, it goes away. It's perfect, right? And it just so happened that this was the day before, uh, it was Saturday, it was the day before uh, Sunday and then the 4th of July, and so it was a long weekend, and, and the errands that I had to run were kind of time sensitive, and you know, the weather's been kind of interesting lately, and pile on, pile on, pile on, pile on, like all these things, and I thought, man, I got to get this thing fixed, and uh, certainly uh, six days later when I got it fixed, I was happy, but it was kind of out of the time that I wanted, and I remember all the things that kind of went into that, I thought, man, this really didn't work out in the time frame that I wanted. But it's also interesting to look back on this end of it and recognize what God was able to do and redeem the fact that that one squeak ended up being a great blessing because it opened the door for me to be able to minister to someone else. It opened the door for me to be able to rest a little bit, which I'm not prone to doing, especially when I've got projects to do. 
Sometimes we experience that squeak in other areas of life. We experience that squeak uh, on a deeper level with the loss of a job, with the loss of a home, the loss of a loved one. Perhaps we experience that squeak or that squeal in, in large fashion with all those losses at the same time. You and I both know that life isn't always wrapped up in a nice, neatly packed package. And when it comes to our relationship with other believers, it's not going to always be wrapped up in a nice package either. Relationships can be messy. They often are, in fact. Fellowship can be messy. And the secret is because it includes people. And you and I know because we're people that people aren't perfect. Often fellowship can be messy. And here, here's... Here's the crux of it coming into verse 17, and I I better land the plane right here. It says this, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. So he did respond, and he did obey. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, which that is so key. I don't want to just jump past that. Brother Saul, not stranger Saul, not just Saul, but brother Saul, recognizing that while he used to be a killer, a murderer, a crucifier of Christians, because of his transformation, he is now a brother in Christ. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. You know, this is the best part. This is the most amazing part, because this is the fruit that we don't always get to see. Often you have opportunity, but we don't always get to see. This is the fruit of, uh, first of all, of, of what God has already done and what he's called his vessel to, but it's also the fruit of recognition of what happens when we are obedient, and God can work through our obedience, even when we don't know exactly what the next portion is going to look like. And so here's specifically some takeaways. Fellowship requires, and kind of that last point together, fellowship requires and provides many attributes. And here are just a few. The first one under requires, what is required of you? The first one is this, vulnerability. And right now, some of you just said, oh, I'm done. I'm not listening anymore. I don't want to be vulnerable. Sometimes we, we might even associate that with being emotional, and that's like a bad thing within our, our culture. No, vulnerability is simply the opportunity to be open with someone else and allow them to be able to engage with you. I know it might be scary for some because it's a perceived opposite of strength, or maybe you're a private person. Let me just tell you right now, Satan would want nothing more than for you to believe that you can do it alone. He would love for you to isolate yourself and say, you know what, I'm strong enough to do this on my own. I'm strong enough to take care of things and to live life on my own. You know, the reason Romans 14 discusses this idea, uh, the, the nature, or realizes the nature of, 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 what, uh, of what isolation can do, this idea of an island, is because Satan wants us to recognize that we are not, or that we, we think we are strong enough even though we are not. It's not strength to say, I can do this alone, I can live life alone. Instead, it's a liability. And oftentimes, it's a foothold for the evil one to be able to get a crevice, a crack to to get into your life. The second one is grace. The second thing it requires, that fellowship requires, is grace. And, And to define this for a moment, this is seeing people for who they are, which is people. And sometimes because of the fact that they might have different values or different expectations or different thoughts or might even come to you because they're tired or frustrated or whatever they are in life, sometimes people say things or do things that they didn't intend to mean anything. They didn't intend to hurt your feelings. They didn't intend to attack you. Instead, it was simply just something that they said or did. And because of the fact that Satan has attempted to try to drive a wedge in, he's going to make you mad or frustrated, or, or, or basically right off that other person. But what grace does is it sees people for where they are, recognizing the fact that we are flawed, and sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we say things or do things that we didn't necessarily intend to be received the way that they were. 
It's seeing people where they are. Perhaps it's, it's one of these things that, that's not necessarily unlimited, and I, I recognize that too. Sometimes you show grace too much, you can get taken advantage of. And you, you probably have heard the verse before, you know, Matthew 10, 14 talks about dusting off the, the, the dust from your feet. If they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet and, and, and leave town. And that is an interesting t- uh, passage, but I wanna, I'm saying this specifically. I want us to recognize that that is meant for those you're sharing the gospel with that don't respond to it. When it comes to believers, we don't write each other off. Now, if somebody says to you, hey, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with you. That's, that's different. That, that actually kind of puts up the wall and they've made the decision. But we don't write each other off because of the fact that we might have a disagreement. Show grace. Because you've been shown grace. The second thing under provides, what, what benefits could we obtain? And I know that we don't do this for the benefits, but it's important to note, here are some things that come as a wellspring, as an outpouring of engaging in interpersonal fellowship. The first one is strength. You know, sometimes when we, we deny our own individual strength, we recognize and we step into it that God can grant us a strength that is supernatural and that comes from the recognition of what it means to be in relationship with other believers. This is might, might be the opposite of what you would expect, gaining strength by, by being vulnerable with other people. Let me say that is the truth. Because as we engage together, we have mutual strength with one another. Where two or more are gathered, Matthew 18 says, we'll be strengthened. We should iron sharpen iron, as Proverbs 27 discusses. We should sharpen one another. We should keep one another sharp. A cord of three strands is not easily broken, talking about God and others in this recognition from Ecclesiastes 4. There's strength in interpersonal fellowship. And then finally, that last one is accountability. And accountability sometimes can be considered a, a, a dirty word or something We're like, no, I don't really want that. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Their convictions are different than mine, so they can't, they can't pour into my life. Let me just say accountability is something that God created for us so that we might be able to continue to bring forth an opportunity to glorify Him. For you and I, the, the opportunity to keep someone accountable is not about thumbing in our, our finger in their face and saying, hey, I can't believe how bad you are. No, it's saying, hey, let me raise your level of awareness so you can recognize this is maybe a blind spot you didn't even notice, but it's not honoring to God. And perhaps accountability is done on a smaller scale. Perhaps it's done around those tables as relationships are built within the context of our groups that we're going to start in the fall. Maybe it's done within your family or even with your spouse. There has to be real relationship there or else it is going to seem judgmental based upon how it's presented. But accountability is the opportunity, the avenue for someone to grow spiritually. For you to be able to pour into someone else. Get this, the reason that you see that in someone else is because God has granted you the eyes to be able to help your brother or sister. Perhaps God is calling you as the Ananias to go to the Saul or now the new Paul and say, hey, here's something that God has called me to. And you are the one, the avenue, the vessel to which God brings forth the truth that will help scales fall from someone else's eyes. Accountability is interesting. You know, I think about that, that team that I was on and this idea of two is, is better than one and this idea of recognizing that we're all together. And that team, as we engaged together throughout the season, we all came together and surrounded our, our, our thought process and our, and our way on what it meant to uh, uphold these values. Now, we won some games, and, and we enjoyed a good season, but one of the things that I noted about the entire season that's no, that's, that's, that just sticks in my memory is that eventually we got to a certain point about two-thirds of the way through the season where it was a make-or-break moment for one of our best players on the team. In fact, I would contest that he was the best player on our team. But the reality was that he didn't hold to the same values that the rest of the team held to. And throughout that first two-thirds of the season, we would keep him accountable and we would tell him, hey, you're falling short here. You're not getting it done in the classroom. You know, we were holding each other accountable. We had come together. We decided this is what we believe. And as we continued to do so, we got to a certain point where he said, okay, I'm either going to be in or I'm going to be out. And the coach didn't have to bring this up. It was us as the players. And we came to him. We said, okay, make a decision. And I'll tell you right now, he left the team. And that was a sad moment as we look at it as a church, say, what in the world? What do you mean? And eventually, as we continued to talk with him, not a month later, before the season ended, he came back. He said, you know what? I was selfish. I recognize that. And he thanked us for holding him accountable to the things that he was falling short on. And guess what? He was stronger because of it. 
And I know that's just a sport and it's just a, a, you know, a, a, an interesting memory, but let me just say within, say within the context of the church, God has given us the opportunity. Yes, we make the decision to follow him individually, but he's given us the opportunity to grow together corporately as a community. We come to this place. We come to this space right here. We see each other out in the community. Perhaps many of you even live together as family. And we have the opportunity every single day to engage in interpersonal fellowship. So I encourage you today, two things. We're going to pray in just a minute to close. I encourage you two things. The first one is this. If you don't have someone that you regularly engage with, and accountability. Someone that can ask you hard questions, someone that you will be honest with, someone that you can say, hey, let's study the scripture and see what it says. Someone that you can, you can say, hey, I want you to tell me when you see me falling short. And that doesn't mean somebody that lives far away. That doesn't mean somebody that, you know, that, that you, you are unequally yoked with. That means another believer, someone else that's going to be engaged with you on, on a regular basis where you can meet, where you can talk, where you can engage with. If you don't have an accountability partner, I want to encourage you now uh, as we uh, kind of uh, conclude this service and as we go into prayer to be thinking about who that might be, asking God to provide a person for you. And on the other end, perhaps there's some here today that, hey, you have had a falling out or some kind of fight with somebody within the church. Maybe not just this church, but any church. Perhaps today is the day where even if you weren't the one that was at fault, God's calling you to step in and say, hey, you know what? I just want to clear the air here. I want to share with you my heart. I want to show you grace. And not every single situation like that requires some kind of follow-up. Certainly, sometimes there's, there's times where you just have a disagreement and that's it. But perhaps some words were said or some words were received and you want to go back and say, hey, you know what, I, I just, I want to make sure that there's not some way here for Satan to get a foothold in, to eat you up or to eat me up with bitterness or frustration or concern. And you're allowed to respond to both of those if you'd like accountability and if you've got somebody or maybe more than one person you want to engage with. But as we look at this idea, this concept of interpersonal fellowship, we recognize the non-negotiables in life. We recognize those things that are within the context of Scripture that are, that are, that are beliefs that we all have. We also recognize there's these other peripheral things that sometimes become the thing that we major on. And it allows Satan a foot in the door. So as we go to prayer now, I want to encourage you to identify an accountability partner. I want to encourage you too to search your heart for some or one who you might need to go and, and reconcile with. Would you bow with me? God, as we gather in this place, we do so with the recognition that you are here, that you are present in our lives, that you are present in our hearts. And as your word is read and as we, as, as we just reflect upon your great transformation in the life of Saul and what he became, and at the same time, this small obedience of Ananias, one that probably many uh, who, who don't know much about Scripture, maybe even do read Scripture, don't even know the name, but what an amazing obedience and impact that was of his obedience. God, may we, may we take that example. As we sit and stand in, in this place or join online, whatever posture we're in, Father, may our heart's posture be one of humility, one of reflection, one of openness to hear you and to focus on you. God, oftentimes as we respond to the word, we may do so by kneeling at an altar or, or engaging in the Lord's Supper. Today, the response is to go and to do, which often can be the most difficult response we can have. Because we don't just leave it here. Instead, we go from this place. We make that phone call. We set up that meeting for coffee. We engage with that person. We say, hey, I want to be vulnerable and open. Or I want to I clear the air and bring forth reconciliation. Father, I pray that you would transform each one. I pray, God, that we would, we would see fellowship for what it is. For this opportunity for us to be able to grow. This, this command and also this gift that we have. This blessing that it is to be able to engage with other people in a way that you have intended and called for us to do. 
God, may our interaction with one another be a reflection of the same interaction, the relationship, the perfect relationship that you have within your Trinity, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the recognition that that is an affirming relationship. And for us, one where we can glorify you. God, I pray for those that are here today and the the people that have been identified as accountability partners, even in this moment, Father, that you would prepare hearts and minds for for a vibrant and and growing relationships. God, I pray that you would identify people for those who have not identified anyone yet, that you would bring that person to mind. And on the other end, God, I also pray for those that are going to be engaging in in potentially difficult and maybe even very uh, explosive conversations, Father, as as disagreements have been had and feelings have been heard and and decisions have have been made and words have been said that they were not glorifying to you. God, I pray that you would be present in those moments as well. I pray, Father, that you would prepare hearts and minds so that, that your church would be glorified, that you that would be edified, that you would be glorified, Father. We thank you, Father, for the way that you move. We thank you for the fact that you are not done with us yet. We thank you for your grace. And the way that you have granted us the opportunity to be able to experience you in a way that we never could have been able to on our own. So God, I pray this morning, we pray this morning for your church, not just here at CCWC, but your church universal. That we as your church would rise up in, in this community, in the surrounding communities, in this, in this country and around the world to glorify you in one accord in unity. Loving you, Father, and ultimately, God, just lifting up your name in all that we do and all that we say. Empower us as we go from this place. Help us, God, to have clarity and focus. In your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless.